Hey there, and welcome to the return of Quest Along and the continuation of Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Thanks for joining me. I've made it to the beginning of Chapter 5, so for those of you playing along, or the curious ones, you can set your expectations accordingly. We will get to all the story spoiler goodness like always, but Quest Along is about saving you time. So come listen to see if any of my nitpicks from the previous episode have been solved, and if I'm still loving all the things I praised in the previous episode as well. This is nearly 35 hours with Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Let's do the opposite of what I normally do. Let's start with the negatives of the previous episode and see if they're solved in this one. Locations, the locales. This was my first area of concern and a big JRPG has to have diverse and abundant locations or else I'm gonna get bored. I like my exploration in games. Xenoblade Chronicles 2 is still taking the cake with this one. There is much to explore in this game, but I still haven't had that jaw-dropping moment like I did quite a few times in Xenoblade 2. Though I will say the area I left off immediately after I finished chapter 4 and going into chapter 5 does seem like it's headed in the right direction. Now, it doesn't mean that these locations aren't varied. No, we're getting a good selection of places to explore. I'm still intrigued to explore the areas that I find myself in, and there are definitely some standout locations. There's this forest waterfall area that's a standout, and there's this desert location, especially at night. It looks really, really cool, and I like the diversity that I've already been exposed to. So it's not all harping on this game at all. It, it's still a beautiful looking game. For the most part, you know, you do get some blurriness and a lot of pop and that's from a technical standpoint. It doesn't really take me out of the experience like some games I've played before. And the other nitpick I had, there still isn't a big city. All the places are these colonies that are set up and they seem like they're just plopped down because, well, this is a war-torn land. So it's basically just barracks, places for the soldiers to sleep and survive out in the wild. And it's kind of disappointing, to be honest. I know it's a tonal thing that they're going for, but I'm not 100% feeling that choice. Even when we got to the big, a bigger area, it wasn't what I expected. Of course, this could still change. Like I've mentioned before, a lot of RPGs, a lot of JRPGs like to switch it up at the very end of the game. Maybe this will follow suit. Uh, one quick thing, I did say in the last episode that deaths have a very low bar. There was an area that I didn't find any landmarks in, and I was very close to finishing the area, but then I fell off a ledge because I wasn't paying full enough attention, I guess, and I got respawned pretty dang far away. Not a huge ordeal, but it did make me groan a little bit. Antagonist is the other negative point I had in the previous episode. They do feel more like theater pieces than a threatening group of gals and dudes. Think annoying drama club kid gets superpowers and uh, that's kind of what they're going for. There are some excellent reveals, which I will spoil later, and one that I didn't see coming at all and almost feel dumb because I didn't see it. But the motivations right now are still kind of odd. They are doing that thing that I talked about in the last episode where, okay, there's a bunch of you you're sending out your troops, your lieutenants, if we'll call them, one or two at a time, and it just doesn't seem like it's the smartest strategy, but there was one scene that kind of flipped it on its head, 
that maybe they're doing this in a certain style for a reason, so that is to be determined. I'll probably talk about that later on. I still feel like a lot of their scenes when we see these antagonists together are just talking rosy pose and trying to say enough without giving things away. It's a really hard thing to pull off without getting tiresome, and it was threading tiresome in the beginning half of this playthrough. But like I said, there is some reveals at the end of chapter four, especially that make it more exciting. So hopefully that upward momentum continues towards the end game. With those nitpicks changed and unchanged, sprinkled with a little goodness, especially we'll talk about in the spoiler section, you might think I'm down on this game compared to last time, but that's absolutely not the case. It's still JRPG goodness and it all stems from that amazing cast of characters. And now, Teon in the previous one, I said he was kind of a stick in the mud. I mean, he's still kind of a stick in the mud now, but literally after my stopping point of my last episode, we got some character development scenes with him. So that's the one thing I will say about this game that I'm really, really still loving is the character arcs in this game are sprinkled in, whether it's all of them talking as a group and seeing who aligns with who and kind of who's getting called out and people chiming in and making decisions or talking about an event that just happened. But then we get these really hard shifts and focus on a single character, Taeyeon being that one right after that 10 hour mark. Usually these moments are also accompanied by a flashback scene. So characters that we haven't really seen or maybe just a little bit and we get a little bit more insight into how they are thinking and how they have changed again. This game is doing an excellent job of filtering in character development over the course of these events. And we got some subtle juicy ones that make me scratch my head and others that are emotional goodness. I'll have loads to talk about in the spoiler section, so be prepared. Combat. Oh, the combat, it's it's still fun and layered, but with and there are a lot of systems going on, but they are pretty simple to understand overall, which I appreciate. The new classes that I've unlocked really add to the gameplay. And so doing those golden quests to unlock new characters and then be able to use their party after you unlock them is absolutely addicting and it's you definitely do not want to miss out on those. I would say most of the new heroes that you get through these quests are pretty interesting overall, which is nice when you're trying to make them important to the story, but not making them the main driver of the story either. Granted, one of these side characters has a massive influence on the story in these chapters, which is cool to see. More on that later. I realize, though, my strategy has shifted a lot in combat, where, in an odd way, I don't use my Ouroboros interlink as much as I used to, and I thought that would be my main go-to for this game. Obviously, I use them against bosses and elite monsters, but I use it in a way I really didn't think about, because... From the trailer and how big of a deal they're making the interlink system be, I thought that was going to be, oh, the crux of the gameplay. But how I use it is to save my party members for the most part. So when you combine into those forms, you don't take damage. You have a overheating gauge, of course, but you can draw a lot of aggro. So when my characters are starting to get low on the HP and the enemy I'm currently fighting seems to be in a relentless mood and won't back down, I go into the forms and wait for my chain attack gauge to fill up. This way, if my characters are low on HP, they can go into the form, not take damage, and then I go into my character. Then while I'm in the chain attack gauge, I'm prioritizing healing my characters and buffing them. Obviously, I'm doing a little damage with some other moves as well. So then if I 
don't kill my enemy on the chain attack, at least I'm going to be buffed and fully healed when I drop out of it. It's kind of awesome, and I'm really loving the strategy, even though I didn't think that was going to be my main focus of the inner links and the chain attacks. My favorite new classes to control are Full Metal Jaguar and Lone Exile. Talking about the former first, it is a gunner class that does a lot of AoE damage, good at getting a lot of mobs fighting you at once and doing damage all together, which makes the battles go a lot quicker. Plus, I just love the moves. You have this back attack that just summons these giant rifle-looking guns that shoots these orange lasers. Super cool. And the Lone Exile is a double-bladed defender, and it might be my favorite so far. My girl Uni is the one that started off with this class, and I attached gems to her that make auto attacks happen quicker, and that they also have a chance of double strike too. So what ends up happening is she restores her arts so dang quick, and I'm using her more powerful art over and over because of how quickly I can restore my normal ones. It's an awesome combo, and I love seeing these those damage numbers pop up with such a ferocity, and she's wielding it like a freaking Jedi. It's awesome. So for my previous episode, I am still liking the defender classes in this game, and this new attacker one with the guns is really good. It really has changed up the dynamic of the game. Apparently you can unlock the class to get even higher levels through quests, but I'm at the 35 hour mark, which I've done a lot of exploring and some side quests, which we'll talk about in the quick bits, but I still haven't unlocked that for any of my classes. Maybe I've missed a quest or something, but a bit odd at this point in the game, but this game could just be massive and I have because I still have plenty of classes to unlock. Let me tell you though, auto battle is fantastic when the doggo wants to go outside to pee. Even with a fenced-in yard, my dog likes for me to accompany her every once in a while. So I'm in the middle of fighting an elite monster and I'm like, well, I can't pause the game, which is kind of odd. Maybe I could hit the home button, that would have worked. But I just set on auto battle while she's wanting to go out, take her out and come back. And I'm watching my characters using their inner links, their chain attacks. They're doing all the things that I would have been doing. So it's pretty excellent and kind of a really cool feature. Xenoblade Chronicles 3 still has an excellent reward loop for doing side quests that gives you useful rewards for exploring, which is perfect because when I explore, I get experience. So I'm more incentivized to keep doing these side quests. You will get bonuses to things like how close you need to be to pick up an item on the field, or how fast you can run through the areas. So it makes me want to do the side quests so I can upgrade my colonies, which is excellent. Plus, some of these side quests, or class quests to be more specific probably, you run into other major boss battles, like with some other councils that have come and want to take you down. And that's pretty freaking cool. So there you have it in a basically non-story spoiler fashion what's keeping me playing this game. If you have any different views, my DMs are open on Instagram and Twitter, matter of Michael, or you can just yell at me via podcast of your own or whatever you want to do. I hope you're enjoying this quest, whether you're partaking along with me or just a curious secondary party member that's all ears. Share this podcast with someone you love. It does us good here at Bits of Time. I would still be recommending this game to newcomers alike, even though they wouldn't get some references. So again, go play this game, give it a shot. I really think you will enjoy it. Now get out of here, because we're talking spoilers.
Well, well, well. Chapter 4, it ended in... Oh boy. So I think we gotta start with the big reveals that that ending of Chapter 4 really started. And it's really got me questioning how things are going with this game. So our lovely Queen Melia, our girl from Xenoblade 1, is actually a machine. She's our queen, but it's not the girl we adventured with. So these councils are actually running the show for real. Maybe this golden one. The question is, why did they use Melia as their centerpiece? And most likely Nia, even though we haven't found out if that is actually Nia. It looks like her from Xenoblade 2, and we don't know if she's a machine. But I'm going to guess that she is just because Melia was. Now, I had some skepticism. Not, not, no, that's the wrong word. I had some worries when it seemed like the queens were so gung-ho about killing the Ouroboros threat. Because I was thinking in my head, what's a good reason that Melia and Nia would turn and want to slaughter people? It just does not work with their characters. So I couldn't come up with a reason. So now knowing Melia is a machine, it all makes sense. Which is good, because I didn't want them to retcon personalities from the first games. That would be... That, that would be very upsetting. I'm okay with them changing over time because of some crazy event that happened, but to do a switch like that, like that's just too much for me. But I still go back. Why the heck did they make them look like that? I don't know. I guess we'll, hopefully we'll find out. And of course, this goes into the bigger reveal. The Golden Council is another Noah. I don't know how I did not notice this. They obscured enough of his face and changed how he wears his hair and his manner or cadence of speaking, it was enough to fool me. I mean, maybe there's a lot of people out there that saw this coming, but I absolutely did not. And I was like, ooh, I like this. So excellent job, Monolithsoft. You pulled one over on me. So then we also get another version of Mio with super long hair. What are they after? I have no idea, but I love this dynamic of them being, it almost seems like they're lovers or they at least care for each other, but they're also killing a bunch of people in the world. So I, I, I don't know. Now, they did plant this seed, I would say, much earlier, which ties into this whole other versions of our characters out there, which that's some good storytelling to begin with. But I would say around the 12 hour mark, because it's after Taeyeon's scene, so maybe around there, something like that. Yuni finds a dead body that kind of looks like her when we're searching for supplies. And when she reads her dog tags, it is her name. So it's another one of her. And we get these flashbacks of Mobius attacking her and a squadron of people. Noah and Lance aren't present. And from the looks of it, the Mobius is going to kill her by stabbing her through the eye. Now it cuts off and we don't see it happen, but we did find this other Uni's body. Uni found her other body sitting there dead. So that got, oh man, when this happened, I was like, what the heck is going on? Why is there another Uni running around? And why is she dead? And why is Uni not have any memories of it? But she's also getting the flashbacks of this point in time. Now, another cool character building moment. Taeyeon realizes that something's up with Uni. She's frazzled. And Taeyeon seems to be the only one that notices her in distress. And he ends up forcing the party to take a break because he wants to help her out without telling the others. And he makes this tea and it calms her shaking hands and he doesn't ask her about it. And I thought that was such a cool moment for Taeyeon. It's a nice payoff for Uni as well, but he doesn't have to ask questions. He just does what he thinks is right in that situation. 
He's like, I'm going to help you out. Speaking of Tan, I believe he's almost like the second leader compared to Mio. Mio seems to be the emotional lead, but Taeon is front and center every single time we plan a mission and go over things. So he is really the strategist. And he's more in the spotlight deciding stuff alongside Noah than Mio is overall. So I do like that that has shifted in these gameplay hours, and I'm really liking Tyon now. So still a little bit of a stick in the mud, but he's changing. Now this moment, I said happened around hour 12, let's say. The best part about this game, storytelling, is that event is carried all the way over to hour 30-ish, I'd say, maybe? 34, 33, somewhere in there. Right before at Kavesi Castle, when we're fighting the council, Johan... Jor Joran and uh, blah, blah, blah. I can't remember the other guy's name, but she realizes that this is the one that killed her other self and she's kind of freaking out about it. So it makes her not think straight. She starts hesitating and it seems like she's going to lose this battle and that's not good because this Annihilator's charging up and it's going to kill somebody. So this Mobius ends up saying something like, I know you, I recognize you, getting her all frazzled. And then she expertly uses that fear against him by tricking him using Tyon's deceiving capabilities. When he thinks he's got her cornered, it's just a mirage of herself. And I was like, oh, that was that was really good. So we get to see the consequences from previous events, her being more frazzled by th this guy. And then we also get to see her overcome them, even though she's not totally healed by the event. And she doesn't totally understand it either, but we get a payoff in one scene from something that happened quite a bit ago. Now, sticking with the seed of there being more than one character per person. So like we now know there's a second Noah, there was a second Uni. Our girl Ethel, one of our heroes who, you know, bit the dust, but hey, now she's back being grown again. She mentioned something to Camarati at one point saying that he was reborn. And also Council M or the Golden Council also mentioned something about, I could force your rebirth, but that wouldn't be as fun. So definitely... We can be created again. I don't know how the personalities and the memories transfer over. They haven't explained that, but there's uh, there's some interesting stuff going on here. So going back to how this ties into Noah and Mimi, the bad ones, I can't understand why they would keep making everyone fight. Unless they're trying to use that dying energy somehow that the flame clocks collect to restructure the world or the timeline they are in. Because I was wrong about the Annihilation events, I think. They throw in that this weapon is built to use the power of the Annihilation energy. I think that's more of a red herring because that does not totally justify that this is the only way to use the energy, so it's probably still happening. So I could be totally wrong, but I'm going to double down on the timeline hijinks type of thing. I think they these Annihilation events are still the craziness that started in Xenoblade 2 where the timelines are messing with each other. Now, does that, you know, <laughs> actually the reveal of Golden Noah, the bad Noah for right now, we'll call him, that could throw a loop in the whole beginning intro where Noah as a kid is running through that town and everything seems safe. Could that be Golden Noah's memories? I don't know, but that would be, that'd be weird. But then how would Noah currently have those memories because Golden Noah isn't dead, it gets a little crazy and wild so i'm not exactly sure where we're going on that one so obviously i like those reveals for the antagonists it seems like there's going to be even more craziness coming up and speaking of crazy we joran's back and he's turned into such a little psycho <laughs> that caught me off guard and uh he's become this bud stabbing craziness 
summoner necromancer type of guy. But what I like about the moment where he reveals himself, because he died, and now he's back, but he still has the memory, so there's definitely something with death and being reborn here. But what I like even more about his reveal is how our characters react to him and how it affects our trio of friends. I mean, Lance and Noah are the main ones that show emotion, I would say, and Lance does not like Noah's approach to it, saying, you know, we got to kill him. No, we're, we're not going to waste our time on him right now, blah, blah, after he disappears. And I love that they are still fighting over something like this because it's such a hotbed for Lance right now. That inner conflict between our party members, I don't see that a lot in JRPGs. Or maybe it's just been a while since I've played one that did it this well because it really plays up their personality types and how if a new stressor comes into their lives, Joran being alive and also being a psycho and wanting to kill you, People are going to react to that differently, and this one does it perfectly. And I like after the Noah and Lance argument, then we have Uni that comes to comfort Lance in her own ways, telling him to move on, but he doesn't have to forget. So the Joran they knew, he's gone. But you don't have to forget that, and you don't have to forget how angry you are and wanting to kill that little psycho. Now, another one of my favorite moments is the breakdown of Mio in more way than one. So I guess it's kind of two moments. Mio and Noah have this moment where Noah's just telling her, all right, we got to get ready for the next day tomorrow. And, and she's saying to him, yeah, we can just casually stroll around, but you don't have to worry about time. I only have two months left to live. And Noah is just not getting it in this moment. He's like, but you told me you're okay with this. And she's like, you don't understand. So she runs off, even though she did agree. And that's true. But Sarah comes over and she's the bridge to help Noah understand. She basically tells him, okay, you got to go apologize to her. But one moment I like even more within this is Sarah casually just says, you know, I'm kind of jealous of you because Mio actually tells you her feelings. And in a sad sort of way, but not in a mad one, it's very interesting from her character perspective. And the reason that Mio is telling Noah about her feelings is because he's also an officer, so they have that common bond together. At least that's what Sarah thinks. And I love that we get a cut of Lance and Teyan agreeing with each other about like, ah, I don't want to deal with this drama. And Lance is like, all right, give me a high five. And Teyan just won't do it. And it's a, it's a really funny and clever scene. Then the next morning, Mio comes to Noah and tells her why everything's going on, that there were two officers and she was with this one. And uh, we got a flashback earlier in the game showing that her friend gave her her flute and it looked like she died. And that's what did happen. And Mio is sad because she thinks that she's on borrowed time. She's just living the life that her friend couldn't live because crazy part is her friend was younger than her. So it should have been the other way around. She was older. So Noah and Mio exchange flutes because she wants that flute to last a little bit longer in this world and create more memories. You know, in a world where you only live 10 years, it's a pretty big deal on what's going on in this scene. So it was very touching. And I like this bonding of Mio and Noah. I'm rooting for them. And then you get the outburst of Mio in a different way where she punches Mobius P and O right in the face. And <laughs> it's caught me off guard. It was so funny. And she's just like, stop toying with people's lives. And yeah, I agree. I don't know what the councils are doing. Because I know Noah, bad Noah and bad Mio is up there doing the same thing. So stop it. And that battle felt great. It was very high stakes. And how it ended with Noah and Mio cutting into the ground before 
Mobius was going to explode from the being interlinked too long and it just cuts into the cliff and drops them down and it explodes and i was like yeah this game is awesome <laughs> and these are the moments i kind of live for this game yes i love the combat yes i love exploring in this game you know, wish the environments were a little bit more diverse but they are but you know you know what i mean i want that xenoblade 2 area but this is why i'm playing this game the cast of characters and the story payoffs and we're getting them time and time again now, I played a little bit after that Kavesi scene where we left the castle and left Noah and Mio behind. We didn't see Mio. Our characters didn't. So we got a Senna backstory about her being the one left out, kind of, at her training camp. It seems like she wasn't, I don't know, if she's not trying as hard or she doesn't fit in exactly. So it's, it's kind of interesting on that part. And she's talking to the clouds in real time after the flashback. And she's saying, did I do good out there? But I... I don't know who she's talking to. Or is she talking about herself? I know she's talking about herself, but like, is she talking to a past self of hers? And Lance questions her on it, and she plays it off super weird and odd. So she seems to be insecure about herself or something, so maybe that's going to be a start of focus on this chapter. And we'll probably get a payoff for that, too. But, man, it was out of the blue and just kind of weird. And we're going to finish up with the quick bits. So I'm on level 47. I've done 23 different side quests. I'm now in chapter five, as you know. My exact playthrough time is 34 hours and 53 minutes. I have died quite a few times more, maybe a handful more times than previously. And these are mainly environmental mishaps or I tried to challenge a too strong of an enemy and just got annihilated. So I haven't been keeping track, but I'd say like six or seven more times probably. Now, two specific times I died on the Archer subclass quest where these three big like slug looking guys man it was it was very hard <laughs> for some reason so i just had to fiddle around with my classes and gems which is great that i have that customization ability that to tweak each build and then i just dominated them so i i still love that that happened in xenoblade one a lot and i love that i can still do that i have mastered six classes and i have unlocked seven of them the hovering reeves and cabesi castle felt like true jrpg dungeon crawling in a way which I liked, having to figure out how to navigate, there's different ways to go, switches to push, elevators to move. So I like that we're getting a little variety in the dungeons as well. And I'm eager to play more. And very eager to figure out how the younger Ethel, if we're going to have come in contact with her, are they going to force her to grow up really quickly? So many questions. So there you have it, and everything is pretty crazy in Xenoblade Chronicles 3. I'm still loving it even with my nitpicks seemingly invading these hours of the game time as well. I thank you for listening this far. I'm happy I'm still loving the cast. The story is keeping me guessing, and the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay and exploration is keeping me intrigued as well. I mean, what more could you ask for? Very little. Thanks for joining me on this quest, and see you at the credits of Xenoblade Chronicles 3.